Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. Today we'll be discussing Doctrine and Covenants, sections 6 through 9, for the week of January 25th through 31st. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff, the author of the Super Sunday Activity Book. I'm excited to be studying the Doctrine and Covenants this year, and am especially excited to discuss today's lesson. I'd argue that the major message of President Russell M. Nelson's presidency over the past three years has been personal revelation. Given the prophet's repeated emphasis on that subject, I've given personal revelation a lot of thought these past three years. I suspect you have too. This week's Come Follow Me lesson includes arguably the most helpful instruction on personal revelation in all of Scripture. Before we get to that, though, let's talk generally about Oliver Cowdery. This week, Oliver Cowdery enters the scene. Oliver is an endlessly fascinating character to me. We are all likely familiar with his story. Oliver Cowdery comes to Palmyra, New York in the fall of 1828 as he begins a teaching job. While there, he befriends the Smith family and learns of Joseph's story. Desiring to learn more, Oliver travels to Harmony, Pennsylvania with Joseph's younger brother Samuel to meet the prophet. Oliver first meets Joseph Smith in April 1829, and immediately the two enter into a powerful partnership. Within a year, Joseph would translate while Oliver transcribed the text of the Book of Mormon. They would publish the Book of Mormon and would organize the church. In the early years of the church, Oliver was a hugely important figure. Better educated and more comfortable speaking in front of people during those early months, Oliver was to Joseph Smith as Aaron was to Moses. Oliver Cowdery would be present for some of the most important events of the Restoration. Along with Joseph Smith, Oliver first received the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods in this dispensation. He was the first to be baptized in this dispensation. He was, of course, one of the three witnesses— Oliver was present with Joseph Smith at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple when they were visited by a number of heavenly messengers, culminating in a visit by Jesus Christ himself. And yet, despite all of this, we know what happens to Oliver next. During challenging times in the Kirtland years, Oliver has a falling out with Joseph, which ultimately led to his excommunication from the church. Later, towards the end of his life, with his health failing, Oliver is rebaptized and welcomed back into the church now led by Brigham Young. I've often looked at Oliver's story as a cautionary one. Here was someone who was part of the highest councils of the church and lost it all. Fortunately, he returned to the waters of baptism, but at his passing, he had gone from assistant president of the church to nothing more than a lowly member. Yet, as I've gotten older, my affection for Oliver Cowdery has grown more and more. I empathize with Oliver as his pride gets in the way of his service in the church. As I've become more acutely aware of my own shortcomings, I sympathize with Oliver when his resentment against other church leaders and his own waning influence on the governance of the church pushed him out of that church. How awesome is it, then, to see Oliver's humility in returning to the church? When he was rebaptized, 
he had no grand aspirations of once again playing a leading part in the kingdom. He just wanted to be a part of the kingdom. I suspect you, like me, have been offended at some point by something said or done by someone within the church. When that happens, it is hard not to push back. We naturally want to be recognized for our good work and are not happy when criticized. In Oliver's case, his excommunication would have been widely known throughout the church. No effort to minimize the rebuke could have kept it from becoming general knowledge. That would sting. I don't know about you, but I wonder if my fragile pride would have ever allowed me to humbly return to the church. Recently, The Atlantic published a wide-ranging article on the church. In the article, the author interviewed President Russell M. Nelson. Something President Nelson said will stick with me, I suspect, for a long, long time. Speaking of his own mortality and his own day of judgment, President Nelson said the following, I doubt if I'll be judged by the number of operations I did, or the number of scientific publications I had, I doubt if I'll even be judged by the growth of the church during my presidency. I don't think it will be a quantitative experience. I think he'll want to know, what about your faith? What about virtue? What about your knowledge? Were you temperate? Were you kind to people? Did you have charity, humility? Based on President Nelson's criteria, I suspect Oliver Cowdery has done quite well for himself. In the end, it doesn't matter if we served as bishop or Relief Society president. It doesn't matter if Oliver ended up as assistant president of the church or nursery leader. Incidentally, why do we always use nursery leader when listing an unimportant church job? It's clearly a hugely important job, and one that requires a skill set that not everyone in the church possesses. What matters is that we believe, we are charitable, and we are humble. It seems to me that in the end, Oliver checked those boxes. With that out of the way, let's consider today's lesson. On April 5th, 1829, Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith meet for the first time. Oliver traveled about 100 miles from Palmyra, New York, where Joseph's parents lived, to Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph and his wife Emma were living. Oliver was 22 at the time. Joseph was 23. That they would meet when they did was no coincidence. After learning about Joseph's remarkable vision from the Smith family, Oliver made it a matter of prayer to determine the validity of his claims, and, according to Lucy Mack Smith, Oliver told the family, I firmly believe that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to harmony. If there is a work for me to do in this thing, I am determined to attend to it. For his part, Joseph was expecting Oliver. Again, according to Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph had prayed for assistance in translating the plates and was assured that a scribe should be forthcoming in a few days. Prior to Oliver's arrival in Harmony, Joseph Smith had possession of the plates for just over a year and a half, with very little to show for it. Most of the translating he had completed was lost when Martin Harris shared their work with his family. Upon Oliver's arrival, the work really took off, 
with the translation of the Book of Mormon completed on June 30th, under three months later. Joseph picked up translation of the Book of Mormon where he and Martin Harris had left off, and not at the beginning of 1st Nephi. In fact, the books of the small plates of Nephi, 1st and 2nd Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jeremiah, and Omni, were some of the last things translated. Now, Joseph and Oliver began with the book of Mosiah, and continued through to the end of Moroni, before turning their attention to the small plates. Here's something else I find interesting. Apparently, the lost 116 pages of manuscript included the first pages of the book of Mosiah, that Harris had asked to share the manuscript when he did, and not later, is a huge blessing. Imagine if he had asked to share, say, 126 pages a few days later. Had that happened, we would have lost King Benjamin's sermon. What's more, the fact that we lost a chunk of the book of Mosiah suggests that the book was named after King Benjamin's father and not his son. Thinking of the stories of Mosiah I and young Benjamin we lost makes me sad. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm extremely grateful for the small plates of Nephi, but I wish we could have had first and second Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni, and the 116 lost pages. Oh well, maybe someday. Like I said, Oliver and Joseph met on April 5th, 1829. Translation of the Book of Mormon began in earnest two days later on April 7th, 1829. Some point during those early days, Oliver requested a revelation from Joseph Smith regarding the work that they were to embark upon. He likely wanted to be sure that what he was signing up for was truly the will of the Lord. Oliver's answer came in the form of the revelation now canonized as Doctrine and Covenants, section 6. Speaking to Oliver's apprehension, the Lord said the following. This is from verses 22 and 23. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? I love this passage, because it gives us valuable insight into the way the Spirit works. Namely, we can't call it down whenever we want it. Notice that the Lord didn't grant Oliver a spiritual manifestation right there and then. Instead, he directed Oliver to remember and experience with the Spirit he had already had. As a missionary, I probably told the story of the prayer I offered upon finishing the Book of Mormon for the first time hundreds of times. It was a powerful manifestation of the Spirit that carried me throughout my teenage years. It made the decision to serve a mission a no-brainer. To quote Joseph Smith, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. While I shared the story of praying over the Book of Mormon for the first time over and over again during my mission, I never once shared the experience of praying over the Book of Mormon after reading it the second time. Some six months later, after finishing the Book of Mormon for the first time, I completed it for a second time. 
I was excited to once again complete Moroni's challenge and to pray for the Holy Ghost to make known the truth of all things. I loved experiencing the powerful witness of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and wanted to experience it again. The thing was, I didn't experience the same powerful spiritual feelings. In fact, I didn't feel much of anything at all. Now, I want to be clear. I did not experience a stupor of thought, something we'll delve into greater detail later in this podcast, but I didn't experience a burning in my bosom either. It was almost as if the Lord was telling me, What are you doing? I already gave you this answer. Maybe some of you float through life from one spiritual high to another, but for the rest of us, powerful spiritual manifestations happen more infrequently and they don't always come on demand. The story of young David O. McKay is extremely comforting to me. As a young man, David O. McKay decided the time had come for him to experience his own sacred grove. Once, while tending cattle with his horse, David dismounted and knelt to pray for his own witness of the gospel. After pouring out his soul in prayer, President McKay later recounted, I arose from my knees, threw the reins over my faithful pony's head, and got into the saddle. As I started along the trail again, I remember saying to myself, No spiritual manifestation has come to me. If I am true to myself, I must say I am just the same old boy that I was before I prayed. Remarkably, President McKay's answer to his prayer did not come until several years later, while he was serving a mission in Glasgow, Scotland. An experience at a missionary conference provided the witness to him he was searching for those many years earlier. Think of it. The Spirit chose to withhold an answer to a future president of the church for several years. I know we live in an age where we are conditioned to receive any and every answer instantaneously. But when it comes to things of the Spirit, the answer comes in the Lord's timetable, not ours. Because we are not entitled to receive powerful spiritual manifestations whenever we want them, it is imperative that we nurture those experiences we've already enjoyed. The challenge for teenage me was to remember the feeling I experienced six months earlier while praying about the Book of Mormon a second time. For Oliver Cowdery, he needed to cast his mind upon the night that he cried unto the Lord in his heart. So how do we successfully do this? Easy. Just follow the Sunday school answers. Pray, read your scriptures, go to church, etc., etc. Seriously. Consider the Book of Mormon example of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Mosiah. In both cases, we're looking at pretty rotten young adults. And, in both cases, they experienced a powerful spiritual manifestation in the form of an angel from heaven sent to rebuke them. But, whereas the sons of Mosiah cleaned themselves up and became powerful examples of righteousness, Laman and Lemuel were soon back to their old habits of murmuring and plotting fratricide. The following two scripture passages are very telling as to why these young men turned out the way they did. First, 
Consider Laman and Lemuel's response when Nephi asked them if they'd turn to the Lord with a question they had concerning their father's vision. We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Next, consider this description of the sons of Mosiah at the conclusion of their fourteen-year mission among the Lamanites. They were men of a sound understanding, and they had searched the scriptures diligently, that they might know the word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation, and when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. Laman and Lemuel were not interested in putting in the work to understand the word of God, and as a result, their experiences with the divine became a distant memory. In contrast, the sons of Mosiah dedicated themselves to things of the Spirit, and their early, powerful spiritual experiences shaped the rest of their lives. Alma the Younger, another rotten youth blessed to have a life-changing spiritual experience, taught the Zoramite poor that our nourishment of the Word should be a constant effort. We've got the same charge. Spend enough time in this church and you are bound to have an experience with the Spirit. To ensure that our experiences with the Spirit lead us down the path of the sons of Mosiah and not Laman and Lemuel, we need to carefully nourish those experiences. We need to regularly study the church, pray, go to church, etc., etc. You know, the Sunday school answers. In another section of the Revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 6, Oliver has promised the opportunity to translate a portion of the Book of Mormon. This promise is subsequently repeated in Doctrine and Covenants section 8. It was Oliver's subsequent efforts at translating that led to the other important insights into personal revelation contained in this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Now, before we go there, let's review what translating the Book of Mormon looked like to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Typically, when we think of the translation process, we imagine a scholar carefully reading a passage in another language and then recording the thoughts included in that passage in a separate language. Dictionaries and other resources would be readily available to assist the translator complete her work. What Joseph Smith was doing and what Oliver Cowdery was soon to attempt to do doesn't match with that picture. Rather than interpreting ideas from another language, Joseph was receiving revelation from God. According to first-hand witnesses, Joseph would look into the Urim and Thummim, where he would see the text laid out for him. He would read the text out loud for Oliver to record the words. In time, Joseph moved from using the Urim and Thummim to a less awkward seer stone, and later in his life, was comfortable enough with the process that he wouldn't need any kind of instrument in the translation process. While translating the Book of Mormon, Joseph regularly would place the seer stone in a hat where he could block outside distractions to better see the revealed text. During the translation process, Joseph didn't have the gold plates open. They were covered, and sometimes they were not even on the table where he worked. That Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon in such an extraordinary manner isn't a surprise. At the time, Joseph Smith was a man of limited education. 
The only way the Book of Mormon was going to be translated by him was through supernatural means. With the promise given in sections 6 and 8 that Oliver could take a turn at translating the Book of Mormon, Oliver gets his chance sometime later during that first month of work with Joseph. Unfortunately for Olive, he is unable to translate. Doctrine and Covenants section 9 is the Lord's explanation to Oliver as to why his efforts were unsuccessful. In accounting for Oliver's failure, the Lord has provided millions of Latter-day Saints with a pattern in seeking out our own personal revelation. Here's the text of Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 7 through 9. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you, when you took no thought save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you, that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. But you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. Not to revel in Oliver's disappointment, but I am so grateful for his failed attempt at translation. For these verses alone, I'm hard-pressed to think of a more useful passage in all of Scripture when facing the challenges of life. Like you, I've used the model explained in Doctrine and Covenants section 9, verses 7-9, through 9, time and time again, as I've considered decisions both large and small. Years ago, while following the precepts laid out in these verses, my wife and I made a choice that greatly blessed our lives. While I was completing college, my wife was preparing to enter the workforce, ready to put her elementary education degree to use. After interviewing at several schools, she had two very promising prospects. The first school was located 10 minutes away from where we were living. The neighborhood that fed into the school included mostly upper-middle-class families, suggesting high parent participation and fewer disciplinary problems from the students. What's more, my wife had a relationship with the school's principal, who years earlier had been her own elementary school teacher, and she knew one of the teachers who she'd be working with. The second school was located over twice as far from our home. It included neighborhoods with a much more transitory element, which often makes for a logistical headache for elementary school teachers. And the job wouldn't begin until a month and a half after the school year started, as she would be replacing a retiring teacher who was leaving after 30 years to the day on the job. This meant that she would have days instead of months to set up her classroom and then have to deal with a class who very likely had spent the past six weeks with a very unmotivated teacher. In our minds, my wife's choice was obvious. But things got tricky when she received a phone call from the principal of the second school offering her the job. She was told that the school needed a reply from her within 24 hours. Meanwhile, while the principal from the first school had made vague promises about offering the job to my wife, we still hadn't received an offer. 
This was a classic case of a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. So we followed the directions from Doctrine and Covenants section 9 verses 7 through 9. We studied it out in our minds, made our preliminary decision to wait for the better job offer, and prayed. I remember opening my eyes and looking at my wife after our prayer. She looked at me and told me in no uncertain terms that she was going to take the job offer from the second school. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but even I recognized that my wife had just had a revelatory experience, and I was not about to argue against that. In short order, she accepted the job and called the first principal to remove her name from consideration for the other job. Over the course of the next several months, we wondered why the Spirit directed her to take the job she did. When she finally started her job in October, she found a classroom with little to no classroom discipline who had received very little education from their teacher. Apparently, the retiring teacher had, for all intents and purposes, retired at the end of the previous school year. The work was extremely challenging. In the end, it was also extremely rewarding. My wife was able to turn the classroom around and make lasting impacts in the lives of the students she taught. But it wasn't until Christmas break that we truly learned what a blessing it was that my wife took the job she did. During the break, my wife ran into the teacher from the other school that she was hoping to work with. That teacher told her what a good thing it was that my wife took the job she did. Apparently, right after my wife accepted the job, the other school received new numbers of projected students that would be attending that year. The numbers came in much lower than expected, and, as a result, the position that my wife had interviewed for was cut. Had we held out for the other, seemingly more desirable job offer, there would have been no job offer at all. This is the power of personal revelation. This is the power of the process for seeking out personal revelation as spelled out in Doctrine and Covenants section 9. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to teach my 14-year-old son about Doctrine and Covenants section 9. He had just been called to serve as the teacher's quorum president in our ward. He now had the responsibility of selecting a presidency to work with him. Sitting down with him in my office, I reviewed the process, and then I got out of his way. Some 15 minutes later, he came out of the office with a presidency that he didn't originally have going into the office. Our church leaders have offered some very practical, helpful counsel relating to personal revelation and the process for receiving it as spelled out in Doctrine and Covenants section 9. President Dallin H. Oaks has reminded us repeatedly that not all of us experience the Holy Ghost the same way. In the August 2013 Enzyme, he wrote the following, This may be one of the most important and most misunderstood teachings in all of the Doctrine and Covenants. The teachings of the Spirit often come as feelings. That fact is of the utmost importance. Yet some misunderstand what it means. I know of persons who think they have never had a witness from the Holy Ghost because they have never felt their bosom burn within them. The burning of the bosom, I suggest, is not a feeling of caloric heat like combustion 
but a feeling of peace and warmth and serenity and goodness. And Elder Richard G. Scott has taught that there is a third possible outcome when we pray over a decision. In the April 2007 General Conference, he taught, Some misunderstandings about prayer can be clarified by realizing that the scriptures define principles for effectual prayer, but they do not assure when a response will be given. Actually, he will reply in one of three ways. First, you can feel the peace, comfort, and assurance that confirm that your decision is right. Or second, you can sense an unsettling feeling, the stupor of thought, indicating that your choice is wrong. Or third, and this is the most difficult one, you can feel no response. What do you do when you have prepared carefully, have prayed fervently, waited a reasonable time for a response, and still do not feel an answer? You may want to express thanks when that occurs, for it is an evidence of his trust. When you are living worthily and your choice is constant with the Savior's teachings and you need to act, proceed with trust. As you are sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit, one of two things will certainly occur at the appropriate time. Either the stupor of thought will come, indicating an improper choice, or the peace or the burning of the bosom will be felt, confirming that your choice was correct. When you are living righteously and are acting with trust, God will not let you proceed too far without a warning impression if you have made the wrong decision. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf has emphasized the fact that the restoration is still happening today. Certainly, the changes during President Russell M. Nelson's presidency support that concept. I am struck that in regards to personal revelation, there is more expected of us than of our ancestors. In the constant forward motion of the restoration, we need to have a closer relationship with the Spirit than the Latter-day Saints who came before us. One hundred years ago, it would have been possible to live your life as an active Latter-day Saint without ever reading the Book of Mormon or receiving a witness of its truth. Today, that seems virtually impossible. The principles of personal revelation taught in Doctrine and Covenants sections 6, 8, and 9 are more important than ever. I began this podcast by referencing what President Russell M. Nelson has, I believe, emphasized as a central message of his prophetic ministry these past three years. Let me end with his words on the subject from his April 2018 General Conference Address. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ about your concerns, your fears, your weaknesses. Yes, the very longings of your heart. And then listen. Write the thoughts that come to your mind. Record your feelings and follow through with actions that you are prompted to take. As you repeat this process day after day, month after month, year after year, you will grow in the principle of revelation. I have a testimony of the truthfulness of President Nelson's message. I have a testimony that personal revelation is obtainable for all of us. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.